Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armaza. In this great episode, I sit down with the very genuine Raul Vasquez, CEO of Oportun, a NASDAQ-listed company that provides responsible consumer credit. Founded 15 years ago, Oportun has extended more than 4 million loans and over $10 billion in affordable credit. Raul has been Opportune CEO since 2012 and has previously served as CEO of Walmart.com. Currently, he also serves on the board of Intuit, as well as the National Association for Latino Community Asset Builders. He's also a proud MBA of our very own Wharton School. In this episode, we discuss Raul's fascinating story and how the oldest son of Mexican immigrants became the CEO of a publicly traded company, Opportune's digital and retail hybrid approach, and the importance of being a mission-driven company, reasons why about 100 million people are not fully served by the U.S. mainstream financial system, and what Opportune is doing about it, the reflections of taking Opportune public and a deep dive into their IPO process, the power of compassionate leadership, some management lessons, and the hardest business decisions he's had to make, and just a lot more. Now join me in a fascinating conversation with Raul Vasquez. Well, Raul, thank you so much for joining us on, on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. First of all, Welcome and welcome back home, I should say, because uh, you, you're you're an alum. You, you're a Wharton MBA, uh, which is extra exciting for us. Uh, how, how are you doing today, Raúl? I am well. I am well, Miguel. Thank you for this opportunity. It's a pleasure to be part of this podcast. Absolutely, and and I, I think I asked you this before we started recording, but you're calling us from the Bay Area, right? Yes, I am. I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area, and sounds like the Bay Area is booming these days is, is, is coming back. It's not dead like Twitter says. Uh, people are going back and moving again to San Francisco. Uh, that seems to be the case. I, I think it's a really interesting time. There are so many companies that are embracing remote work. I mean, we here at, at Opportune have decided that we're going to be remote first. And we've for years had people working in different areas. And I think we're doubling down on that so that we can get the best talent and we can support people's desire for life-work balance. So it's an interesting time here in San Francisco because there are people moving away, but to your point, there continue to be people moving into the area. And I understand that rents in San Francisco are starting to go back up again. <laughs> Maybe that's not so welcome news. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> so so let's hear about Opportune. You know, exciting to kind of hear about the company, but before we go there, actually, let's hear about you. Right. Maybe we can hear about your story. Sure. So I am the son of two Mexican immigrants. Uh, my parents were both born in uh, small mining towns in Mexico. And I continue to think that one of the best things that happened in my life was just the good luck of being born to them. I was actually born here in the U.S. My parents are a retired doctor, a retired nurse. So they, they worked really, really hard to achieve a level of education in Mexico. And then they came to the U.S. to further their education. And I, I am the oldest of four. I was born here, and I think my parents decided to stay here 
to just give us, you know, a better future, give myself and my siblings a, a better future. I grew up in El Paso, Texas, and I am an industrial engineer by training. And so growing up in El Paso, would you kind of cross back and visit Mexico often? A lot, a lot. I, I think now, um, you know, as an adult and, and as a father of four kids myself, I've really come to appreciate what a wonderful opportunity that was. We, we spent a lot of time in the small mining town that my mom is from. We would go there in the summer. We would go there for Christmas. And I think it just it became a big part of my identity. It helped me relate to a broader group of people and developed elements of, of the kind of the stereotypical Latino approach to family, right? Close to cousins, close to my aunts and uncles, and just really uh, a wonderful, wonderful environment. No, I, I can relate. And it sounds like you, although you were born here, it sounds like you grew up with what's called the immigrant mindset, right? Which is, you know, you, you have this inner drive and hunger and you also appreciate the reality of other places, right? And that's something I think about a lot and something that I guess it's harder to pass on for generations that grow up only in the U.S. I think it is harder to pass on. And, and you're right, I, I do think I grew up that way. We come from a modest background in my family. So that there were times when we would go to Mexico and there wouldn't be running water or there'd only be kind of water for a day. So you'd collect it in a bucket and then we would take kind of showers out of that bucket. I, I remember still being a little boy and you kind of step into the bucket and you're kind of showering and you're grabbing handfuls of water. Um, or if it was a day where there was running water, you took a really quick shower or by the time it was your turn, there was no more hot water. And it was a really, really fast one because it was cold water. And to your point, I think my values, my work ethic, my just sense of identity was shaped by a lot of that. We, we played in an arroyo behind my grandmother's house. And my, my kids haven't had that same experience. I'm super proud of them, um, but their experiences have been different. But to be fair, my experiences were different than my parents' experiences, right? When they describe what it was for them growing up, they had a, a, a degree of hardship that I have not, right? And again, that makes me really grateful to them. And so it sounds like education was really important for your parents, as well as you, obviously. Tell us about the, the journey, your schooling journey, and then about your career. It was. Education was really important, and it's one of the things that, that I'm really focused on with my own kids. My parents would basically say, we'll pay for any education that you want to get. And I, I am a believer in that expression that that's one thing that can never be taken away from you, right, is, is the education that you have. And it can be a great foundation for the future. Um, so I, I grew up in, in El Paso. As I mentioned earlier, I came to school out here in California. I got into Stanford, and it was uh, a very humbling experience for me. I think in retrospect, it turned out that although I thought I was really smart, I think more of it was just that my high school was fairly easy. And El Paso is not an, an affluent community by any stretch of the imagination. So I, I don't fault anyone. I think they gave me the best education that they could. But Stanford was was humbling just because that was really where I had to learn, you know, a higher level of rigor, a higher level of discipline, and just concepts that were absolutely brand new to me, while for others, they were a review of things that they had learned. 
So I got a, um, a bachelor's and a master's in industrial engineering. And um, uh, in terms of the education journey, I, I then worked, I'll give a little bit of employment and then I'll cover the last part of education. I worked as a manufacturing, in a manufacturing environment after getting my industrial engineering degree. I then went into management consulting. I then went into two startups. I jumped into the startup world and in 1998, I went to a company that had been public and then I went to a pre-public company. I, I followed one of the first great mentors in my career. We, as a team, right, we took that company public. It was a great learning experience. And then the dot-com crash happened. And I decided during that period to start the Warden MBA program out here, the executive MBA program out here in 2002, and then completed my formal education in 2004 with the Warden MBA. Amazing, amazing, yeah. Uh, it, and now I think the the Wharton presence in the Bay Area is even stronger. Uh, there's the the semester in San Francisco. There's the program that you went through, and just a lot of initiatives, which uh, you know is very exciting. And so, Raúl, let's hear about Opportun, right? I mean, I do understand that you are a mission driven company, right? Maybe we can start with that mission, right? Sure. So the way that we talk about our mission is that we're focused on providing inclusive, affordable financial services that fundamentally empower our customers and help them build a better future. And we're, we're here in Silicon Valley, so it's all done through technology. It's done through a digital platform that we use across a multitude of channels to be able to serve our customers well. And that platform leverages, you know, not just software, if you will, from a technology perspective, but data analytics, machine learning, and more than 15 years now of proprietary data that we use to provide personal loans, auto loans, and credit cards, all with a view of helping our customers be able to not only get great products, but to develop experience with financial, kind of structured financial products, and then really being able to enter the financial mainstream. Got it. And and. You know, maybe talk about the intersection of technology and traditional finance because you 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 kind of do sit in that middle because you you actually have some physical branches, right? And correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but you also have the online presence. We do, we do. So I joined the company, you know, nine years ago, and before coming here, I had spent time at Walmart.com and at Walmart. So I spent seven years at walmart.com, which obviously was all e-commerce based. I, I had a chance to be the CEO there for three years, which was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. But when I joined um, Opportune in, in 2012, it was really with a view and belief in the, the Mark Andreessen quote of software eating the world. So Opportune had been lending at that point for about five years or so. And to your point, it was primarily a physical model. So that there were physical locations where we would be able to talk to the customer, answer any questions that they have, have them apply for a loan, and then give them the loans that they that they sought and they needed. There was also um, a growing contact center capability. So a customer also that, say, worked two jobs, didn't have time to come to a location, then could call us, right, and do the application process over the phone. But when, when I joined the company, really the leadership team and I 
had this strong belief in that software eating the worldview. So we started to focus a lot of time and attention in a digital capability. And that digital capability has been uh, a journey that, if I remember correctly, I think we started in 2015 or so. Um, so when the pandemic hit last year, thankfully, we already had a well-developed capability. We're happy to serve a customer any way that they want, via mobile, via, again, a contact center or a physical location. But when the pandemic hit, we had to close um, our contact center. Our agents started to work from home. We had to change all of our processes and protocols in our physical locations. And the customer themselves really skewed and moved into digital um, and thankfully, we were ready and we've got a great digital experience for them. Yeah. And, and as you start opening up, it's an interesting experiment, right, that we're all going through. How are you seeing that return? Are customers also starting to go to the branches or they're just staying online? Well, we expect to always have locations, right? As a mission-driven organization, we want to meet the customer in whatever way the customer is comfortable dealing with us, right? So there are going to be individuals that may not have any experience with a formal financial product, and they may actually like in-person interactions, and they'll want to talk to someone and have their questions answered, and we want to have a location for that person, right? And then, as I mentioned earlier, we want to continue to have contact centers where someone can call if they just don't have time to come to our locations. But in our last earnings call, we mentioned that 68% of new applicants are dealing with us via mobile, right? So the overwhelming majority are saying, I don't need to see you. I don't need to talk to you. I'm very comfortable with technology. And that's where, obviously, now the overwhelming majority of our resources are focused. They're creating a great, great experience in that channel. So that's really how we think about going to market from a mission perspective is, we want to be able to serve the customer in any way that they want, but we also want to make sure that our resources are going to the channels that the customer are telling us, the customer is telling us that they prefer. So, so maybe uh, let's talk about those customers that, right? Let's talk about that 68% and, and beyond. How would you describe Opportune's customer? So we describe our customer as a very hardworking, very responsible individual who just has not had a lot of opportunities in their life. So I think there are some wonderful conversations that are taking place right now across this country and other parts of the world about how do we think about systems and ensuring that those systems are fair and just. And for a variety of reasons, I think here in the U.S., there are individuals who have not had a chance to participate fully in the mainstream financial system. And we estimate that there are actually about 100 million of those people, 45 million people who are credit invisibles, 55 million people who we think the bureaus are not scoring well. So our customer is that hardworking, responsible individual that just hasn't had a fair opportunity, the right opportunity. And we've now created an organization of over 2,000 people that wants to serve that individual, that wants to believe in the best in that person, and wants to give them a fair product that leads to great outcomes. And so, obviously, the pandemic has probably hit the hardest, right, when it comes to uh, opportunist customer segment. Maybe talk about the you know, the last, I was going to say that, that year, but it's, it's more than that. We're, we're over a year and a half into it. How was your interaction with your customers throughout 2020 and, and 
even now? So I think in the last year, our customer demonstrated yet again why we can trust the customer, why we have so much faith in our customer. To tell you a little bit more about our customer, our customer earns on average about $50,000, so it's a, a modest income, and they're supporting a family with about 40% of them are supporting a family with that income. So to your point, the last year was extraordinarily difficult because our customer was the person that was still having to leave their home to go to work, right? They could not work remotely. Our customer was the one that was on the front lines, if you will, of having to deal with the risks associated with a highly transmissible disease. And what we sought to do during that period was to continue to make capital available to customers that needed it, continue to make ourselves available for the customers that want to still make payments so that they can get a great credit score because we help customers build credit scores. So it it was a very demanding time for our customer and we were really focused on being there for them and making sure that we were taking care of our employees, but making sure again that we were there for our customer. We have a view that our customer is highly misunderstood. I think most people, when they think about someone that earns, say, $50,000, they think someone that maybe is not credit worthy, maybe someone who you can't count on. And we've now had to deal with two recessions. We've dealt with multiple hurricanes, other things like that. Time and time again, our customer demonstrates that they are dependable. They will come through. They may need a little time to get back on their feet. But if you give them that time and you believe in them, they'll absolutely deliver. And that's what we saw again this last year. And what are, maybe talk about your, your products, right? What's your, your star, your most popular product? And then what are you currently offering? So th- this is a super exciting time for us as a company because we've historically focused on one product. It's been an unsecured consumer installment loan from $300 to $10,000. And what we do is we use a lot of technology, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of machine learning to develop models to be able to score the unscorable. I mentioned that part of the group that we focus on is the 45 million people in the U.S. who are credit invisible. That means they don't have a credit score. And we've had to develop a lot of proprietary models and use a lot of alternative data to be able to figure out how can we serve that customer well and how do we provide a great product at affordable rates. Historically, about half of the people that come to us when they first deal with us don't have a credit score, right? So we've really, really been focused on serving that customer well, and that's that unsecured consumer installment loan that we've been focused on, and it makes up over 95% of our P&L. Over the last two years, as we got larger and understood that customers want more products from us, we've introduced a credit card that is now available in, in 43 states. And we recently introduced also a auto loan or a loan that is secured by an auto. And we've done that because our customers have told us that they want to be able to have access to more capital than, say, the $10,000. And the auto loan gives us an opportunity to be able to serve more people and give them a slightly larger loan. Switching gears a little bit, Raul, you have pretty unique experience for guests that come to the podcast. And, you know, we've had a few that have taken companies public, but not a lot, right? And and Opportune went through the IPO process uh, a couple years ago, right? This is obviously one of the biggest events of a company, right? In a company's life. Why, why, first of all, why go public? And then 
How was that experience leading up to the IPO? So for us, we always felt that we were likely to go public for two reasons. Number one, I mentioned earlier what an exciting time this is for us. In the nine years that, that I've been here, we've always had a growth orientation. And the growth orientation is, is driven, I think, by two factors. Number one, from a mission perspective, if we've served today about 2 million customers in our history, but there are 100 million that we think could benefit from our products, we wake up every day trying to figure out how can we help more people, right? The products that I described are meant to be responsible, affordable alternatives to payday loans or to title loans that can lead to really bad outcomes for customers. So we wake up every day trying to figure out how do we serve more people? How can we be in more states? How can we try to get to more of those 100 million people? So that growth orientation has always existed. And then from a profitability perspective, we think profitability gives us a stable business. It gives us the ability to continue to power the growth of our business. An analogy that exists in our space is, is kind of a bicycle analogy the mission for us is the front wheel. It kind of determines where do we go. It's what you know we say, like our mission points us that way or it points us a different way. But the profitability of the business is the rear wheel. It's what actually gives us the power and ability to move in the direction that we want. So growth is important because it means a stronger P&L. It means more revenue, the ability to cover all of the expenses that come with our fintech right innovation. And growth in a lending business means you need capital. So going back to your question, right, the first reason that we knew we were likely to go public is when you're running a high growth lending business, you're going to need capital. And the deepest and most affordable source of equity capital in the US is the public equity markets. So that was reason number one. Reason number two is if you think about our mission what we are fundamentally doing is, from a financial inclusion perspective, allowing people to enter the financial mainstream. But what we're also doing is we're taking capital that's available in Wall Street and putting it to low and moderate income communities that historically have struggled significantly to have access to capital. Right In the history of the U.S., you've got redlining and other dynamics that have led to credit deserts or have led to areas that just struggle to get the access to capital that they need to have thriving communities. And fundamentally, our business is to say, we're going to provide great credit outcomes so that Wall Street is comfortable lending us money or giving us equity. And then we're going to turn around and put those dollars into these low and moderate income communities so that the individuals and communities can thrive. And this is by far the hardest thing I've done in my career, but it is what I am most proud of because there's now thousands of us that have leaned into this business to be able to put $10 billion into low and moderate income communities. And when you think about that, what we're fundamentally doing is that we are developing a novel approach to take on a difficult social issue. The government has been trying for decades to figure out how do you get capital into these communities. There are wonderful nonprofits that try to do it. There are large institutions, right, that have whole community relations arms to try to do it. And a relatively small company out of Silicon Valley with thousands of people that believe in the mission have been able to do $10 billion of work. And every year our impact gets larger. So the other reason for us to go public then is to try to demonstrate 
a novel approach, a new business model to take on deep, difficult social issues. And it's in essence, what if you take the mission or a heart of a nonprofit and combine it then with the expertise and capabilities in a for-profit business model? And we felt that if you could take a company like that public and make it valuable and make it sustainable, then it could hopefully demonstrate a path for others that want to take on some difficult social issues. That's impressive. That's it. And how about from your point of view as the leader, maybe talk about the, you know, the advantages and disadvantages of running a public company versus a, a private company? So I would say the advantages are, number one, that access to capital, right? We know that being a public company comes with a level of transparency. It is a, a trust-building action in terms of the pockets of capital on Wall Street that I was just talking about. That's certainly an advantage, we believe, right, relative to when we were a private company. I think an, another advantage, I, I mentioned earlier, right, that we're this interesting hybrid of the heart, if you will, of a nonprofit, right? We want to create great outcomes, but then all of these capabilities and the experience that come from the for-profit world. And I think one of the elements that certainly I've learned in my career and that I think a lot of our people have is the importance of hitting your goals, right? The importance of delivering results. So one of the good things I think about being a public company, it's a public scoreboard. You can look at it every day and get a sense of, You know, does the investor community believe in the strategy and the execution of the company, right? And for people that have a positive orientation towards delivering outcomes and hitting their goals, to be able to just look at a scoreboard and understand, are we ahead or are we behind, I think is a significant advantage, right? Um, the disadvantage is, I can think of two of them. I think if you're not careful, it can drive really short-term thinking, right? That's one of the criticisms I think of the public equity markets and of being all public companies. And you and I talked earlier about some of the wonderful conversations that are taking place right now. I think one of the great conversations right now is also this idea of a broader set of responsibilities, right? Of a broader set of stakeholders than just your shareholders. And as a mission-driven organization, we've always had that view. But if you're not careful, I think, again, you can fall into the trap of really having your primary constituents be your shareholders, and that can drive very short-term thinking. The second disadvantage is there's quite a bit of time spent preparing for earning calls, right, for the disclosure documents that come with being a public company. But all things being equal, we would absolutely do it again, and we think that the advantages greatly outweigh the disadvantages. And staying on the, I guess, on the point of leadership, right? On this podcast, something that we love to talk about is, is leadership styles, management styles, and, and even culture, right? How would you describe your management style and how do you relate that of how you think about leadership? So I would describe my management style as a people-led style, right? As in, I think just People and talent are absolutely critical. And usually when, when I think about decisions or about a thorny situation, I think about who, right? Not necessarily just the what or the why. So for me, there's a very kind of people first lens to my leadership style. 
The second thing I would say is we seek to have kind of a very collaborative, inclusive style as well. And then maybe the last one, just to keep it simple, because we could spend a lot of time just talking about this. I spent a lot of time thinking about it, is I believe in servant leadership. So all of those, are, I think, are some of the driving elements of how I think about leadership and how I think about culture. It's a, a very strong people orientation, a desire to build a culture that is very collaborative and inclusive, and then really the element of servant leadership. And uh, just to put you a little bit in the hot seat, uh, you know, when you think of your your years as a as a leader, as a as a corporate leader, is there one or or maybe a couple of decisions that you think of that you know were were the hardest that you had to make? Sure. Yes, I think given the the answer that that I just gave to you, the hardest decisions for me are always the ones that have to do with people. In in thinking about the response to that. Almost every scenario that I think of is one that has to do with with people. It's not a P&L decision. It's not even a, a business decision that's the hard part. It's about making that that people part of the decision in a compassionate way, right? The other, other thing I really believe in from a leadership perspective is just compassionate leadership. Um, so I'll give you a, a great recent example. During the pandemic, I, I mentioned earlier that we were really focused on being there for our customer. We wanted to make sure that we could be there if our customer needed capital or if they wanted to make a payment. I've also mentioned that a lot of how we think about the mission is fundamentally strengthening communities. There were a lot of companies that, for reasons I understand, had to let people go, right, at the beginning of the pandemic. And I, I totally get it. There were people whose revenue went down to zero because of our model our revenue didn't do that. And when we were having, when we were looking at all of the uncertainty that was coming with both the public health crisis and the recession and thinking about whether or not we were going to do layoffs, we decided no. And that was driven both by the desire to be there for our customers. But if part of the mission is fundamentally strengthening communities, why would you send people home to have a difficult conversation around the dinner table to basically say, like, I lost my job today. At a time when unemployment is increasing, the prospects for the economy are incredibly unclear, that's the opposite of strengthening a community, right? That creates a lot of stress in the community. So we decided as a leadership team and as a board that we were going to hold on to our people and we were going to ask our people to adapt. We were going to ask our people to take on new skills if they needed to, to better serve the customer and to really be able to ensure that we were using those dollars, those labor dollars effectively. But I'm super proud of the decision we made as an organization to not let people go during the depth of the pandemic. As we saw consumer behavior change, and you and I spent time talking about how many people didn't gravitated to mobile, right? We went from kind of 40% mobile use to over 60%. And once we got a sense that it was the beginning of the end of the pandemic, right? We then looked at the decision of closing 136 of our retail locations. And the business decision itself was clear. It was obvious when you looked at utilization and looked at the fact that consumers were using mobile more and more. And going back to your question, the hard part was wrapping my head around, you know, the over 100 people that were going to lose their job. Yeah, And I could still do it and rationalize it to myself and present it to the board because the employment picture was getting better. 
right? The new administration was going to extend benefits. So we knew that now we weren't letting people go in the middle of a dark moment. We were letting them go when there was greater support. There was now a view to how the economy was going to get stronger. But that's an example of the difficult decisions for me. Or when I've got to let someone go because they did something unfortunate or because they're not meeting our expectations, still make those decisions, right? But I give a lot of thought to how to do that in the most compassionate and respectful way possible. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, now looking ahead, Raul, when you when you think of the next few years, right? Do you have any predictions of on how, first of all, how fintech is going to evolve, but also about the next stages and steps for Opportun? I think this is, a, as I mentioned earlier, I think this is a really exciting time for us. The pandemic gave us an opportunity to take a step back, reformulate our vision, and to really think about a more ambitious strategy for the next few years. So when we think about what the next few years are going to look like, there's one big pillar of work that is really about growing the core business that we have today, and that's that unsecured consumer installment loan. We've really only had that product in 12 states. We, we've been a state licensed lender, and through a partnership now, we're going to be able to expand to 30 new states. So there's going to be a ton of growth that is going to be driven there, and we're going to further invest in mobile. So we know that there's going to be a lot of growth in just kind of the core of our business. The second big pillar of our work is what we refer to as extending the core. And that's really the new products that we talked about earlier. So it's the credit card business that right now is seeing triple digit growth rates. It's our secured personal loan. That's that loan that is secured by an auto and is meant to be a responsible alternative to auto title loans. That's also growing triple digit rates right now. So there's a lot of growth and there's a lot of new use cases that we can help a customer with, with those two new products. And then there's a third element of work there where we are focused on just kind of some new, more innovative ways to serve our customer and transform our business. So that includes things like becoming a bank, because we believe that becoming a bank is going to allow us to offer even more products to our customer. And we'll be able to not only help them when they need to borrow money, but help them when they need to save, help them when they need to spend, help them when they need to plan. And over time, you know, potentially help them if they want to open a small business or if they want to get a mortgage. So a lot of exciting work there. And then the digital platform that we have, we're trying to figure out how do we extend that and really drive more growth through partnerships. So last year, we started a lending as a service capability that leverages our digital platform. It leverages all of our AI. And we've got a partner right now that we're thrilled with the growth that we have with that partner. And we've got a healthy pipeline right now of people that are saying that they want to work with us in that fashion. Um, so that's some of the, the really exciting work that we've got in our future. Exciting times. And I'm, I'm going to be following very, very closely. <laughs> well, Raul, before we let you go, uh, we always love to ask about our, our guests' hobbies, right? And maybe how you spend some of that time outside of Opportun. And you did mention you have four kids, so I'm sure that takes most of your time. It, it takes a ton of it. And I, I love spending time with family. I had a, a mentor and friend. Is, he was one of my former bosses. His name is Carter Cast. 
And one of the things that he mentioned to me one day is just the importance of balance. And my recollection is he used the, the analogy of a report card and being really intentional about how do you want to do in all of the different topics? You know, which are the ones that you seek to get an A in? Which ones are you seeking to get a B? Which ones might you take in a pass-fail way? Recognizing at least my belief that you can't get an A in everything at the same time. So I am a big believer in balance. And to your point, Miguel, my family is really important to me. So I seek to get an A in terms of spending time with my wife and, and my kids. But then in terms of balance, my health is important to me, right? Being able to show up in a really positive way every day is important. And that means doing things that are not work-related, right? That have nothing to do with the business world. So I, I do love exercising, kind of uh, CrossFit-type uh, workouts. I love fly fishing. I think to just be able to unplug and be on the water and get lost in the kind of the Zen-type elements of fly fishing is really great. I love reading. I love reading, again, things that are not related to the business world. So whether that's science fiction, uh, general fiction, nonfiction, again, of just people that have led interesting lives. Uh, and I love watching movies. I think there's a wonderful thing about, especially going to the movie theater, not looking at your phone, the lights go off, and all of a sudden you step into this wonderful new world. So th those are all things that I enjoy doing in my spare time that help me with that scorecard and achieving the balance that I seek to have in life. Amazing. Well, Raul, uh, saying that I've enjoyed this conversation is an understatement. Uh, really, really thrilled to have had you here on, on the podcast on, on one of my last episodes. So I'm extremely glad we got to do this. And muchísimas gracias. Uh, you are, of course, already a, a friend and alum of Wharton, but do continue to stop by. And I'm sure students will love to continue learning from you. Gracias a ti, Miguel. Um, this has been an absolute pleasure. And congratulations again with what you've been able to achieve as you've led this effort. And I, I absolutely look forward to staying in touch with you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armaza. 